Welcome to the Hackberry House of Cho Sun. My name is Bob. Reading today from a sermon of Charles Spurgeon. It's called True Prayer, True Power. It's available at the Chapel Library. You can contact them at chapel at mountzion.org. The scripture text is Mark eleven twenty four, and this sermon was preached by, as I said, Charles Spurgeon. I think you know who that preacher was. Therefore I say unto you, what things soever you desire when you pray, believe that you receive them, and you shall have them. Mark eleven twenty four. This verse has something to do with the faith of miracles, but I think it has far more reference to the miracle of faith. We shall at any rate this morning consider it in that light. I believe that this text is the inheritance not only of the apostles, but of all those who walk in the faith of the apostles, believing in the promises of the Lord Jesus Christ. The advice that Christ gave to the twelve and to his immediate followers is repeated to us in God's word this morning. May we have grace constantly to obey it. What things soever you desire, when you pray, believe that you receive them, and you shall have them. How many persons there are who complain that they do not enjoy prayer. They do not neglect it, for, for they dare not. But they would neglect it if they dared. So far are they from finding any pleasure therein. And have we not to lament that sometimes the chariot wheels are taken off and we drive right heavily when we are in supplication? We spend the time allotted, but we rise from our knees unrefreshed, like a man who has lain upon his bed but has not slept so as to really recover his strength. When the time comes round again, conscience drives us to our knees, but there's no sweet fellowship with God. There's no telling out of our wants to Him in the firm conviction that He will supply them. After having gone again through a, a certain round of customary utterances, we rise from our knees, perhaps more troubled in conscience and more distressed in mind than we were before. There are many Christians, I think, who have to complain of this, that they pray not so much because it is a blessed thing to be allowed to draw near to God as because they must pray, because it is their duty, because they feel if they did not, they would lose one of the sure evidences of their being Christians. Brethren, I do not condemn you. But at the same time, if I may be the means of lifting you up this morning from so low a state of grace into a higher and more healthy atmosphere, my soul shall be exceeding glad. If I can show you a more excellent way, if from this time forth you may come to look at prayer as your element, as one of the most delightful exercises of your life, if you shall come to esteem it more than your necessary food and to value it as one of heaven's best luxuries, surely I shall have answered a great end, and you shall have to thank God for a great blessing. Give me then your attention while I beg you, first, to look at the text, secondly, to look about you, and then to look above you. First, look at the text. If you look at it carefully, I think you'll perceive the essential qualities 
that are necessary to any great success and prevalence in prayer. According to our Savior's description of prayer, there should always be some definite objects for which we should plead. He speaks of things, what things soever you desire. It seems then that he did not put it that God's children would go to him to pray when they have nothing to pray for. Another essential qualification of prayer is earnest desire. For the Master supposes here that when we pray, we have desires. Indeed, it is not prayer. It may be something like prayer, the outward form or the bare skeleton, but it is not the living thing, the all-prevailing, almighty thing called prayer, unless there be a fullness and overflowing of desires. Observe, too, that faith is an essential quality of successful prayer. Believe that you receive them. You cannot pray so as to be heard in heaven and answer to your soul's satisfaction unless you believe that God really hears and will answer you. One other qualification appears here upon the very surface, namely, that a a realizing expectation should always go with a firm faith. Believe that ye receive them. Not merely believe that ye shall, but believe that you do receive them. Count them as if they were received. Reckon them as if you had them already. And act as if you had them. Act as if you were sure you should have them. Believe that you receive them and you shall have them. Let's review these four qualities one by one. To make prayer of any value, there should be definite objects for which to plead. My brethren, we often ramble in our prayers after this and that and the other, and we get nothing, because in each we do not really desire anything. We chatter about many subjects, but the soul does not concentrate itself upon any one subject. Do you not sometimes fall on your knees without thinking beforehand what you mean to ask God for? You do so as a matter of habit, without any motion of your heart. You're like a man who should go to a shop and not know what articles he would procure. He may perhaps make a happy purchase when he's there, but certainly it is not a wise plan to adopt. And so the Christian in prayer may afterwards attain to a real desire and get his end, but how much better would he speed if if having prepared his soul by consideration and self-examination, he came to God for an object at which he was about to aim with a real request. Did we ask an audience at Her Majesty's court we should be expected to reply to the question, What do you wish to see her for? We should not be expected to go into the presence of royalty and then to think of some petition after we came there. Even so with the child of God. He should be able to answer the great question, What is thy petition? What is thy request? And it shall be done unto thee. Imagine an archer shooting with his bow and not knowing where the mark is. Would he be likely to have success? Or conceive a ship on a voyage of discovery, 
putting to sea without the captain having any idea of what he was looking for. Would you expect that he would come back heavily laden either with the discoveries of science or with treasures of gold? In everything else you have a plan. You do not go to work without knowing that there is something that you designed to make. How is it that you go to God without knowing what you designed to have? If you had some object, you would never find prayer to be dull and heavy work. I am persuaded that you would long for it. You would say, I have something that I want. I, oh, that I, I could draw near my God and ask him for it. I have a need. I, I want to have it satisfied. And I long till I can get alone that I may pour out my heart before him and ask him for this great thing after which my soul so earnestly pants. You will find it more helpful to your prayers if you have some objects at which you aim. And I think also if you have some persons whom you will mention. Do not merely plead with God for sinners in general, but always mention some in particular. If you're a Sunday school teacher, don't simply ask that your class may be blessed, but pray for your children definitely, by name, before the Most High. And if there be a mercy in your household that you crave, don't go in a roundabout way, but be simple and direct in your pleadings with God. When you pray to him, tell him what you want. If you have not money enough, if you're in poverty, if you're in straits, state the case. Use no mock modesty with God. Come at once to the point. Speak honestly with him. He needs no beautiful uh, circumlocutory speech or writing he, such as men will constantly use when they, they don't like to say right out what they mean. If you want either a temporal or spiritual mercy, say so. Don't ransack the Bible to find out words in which to express it. Express your wants in the words that naturally suggest themselves to you. They will be the best words. Depend upon it. Abraham's words were the best for, for Abraham. Yours will be the best for you. You don't need to study all the texts in Scripture to pray as Jacob or <coughs> Elisha did, using their expressions. If you do, you will not imitate them. You may imitate them literally and servilely, but you lack the soul that suggested and animated their words. Pray in your own words. Speak plainly to God. Ask at once for what you want. Name persons, name things, and make a straight aim at the object of your supplications. And I am sure you'll soon find that the weariness and dullness of which you often complain in your intercessions will no more fall upon you, or at least not so habitually as it has heretofore done. But, saith one, I don't feel that I have any special objects for which to pray. Ah, my dear brother, I, I know not who you are or where you live to be without special objects for prayer, for I find that every day brings either its need or its trouble, and that I have every day something to tell to my God. But if we had not a trouble, my dear brethren, if we had attained to such a height in grace that we had nothing to ask for, do we love Christ so much that we have no need to pray that we may love him more? 
Have we so much faith that we have ceased to cry, Lord, increase it? You will always, I am sure, by a little self-examination, soon discover there is some legitimate object for which you may knock at mercy's door and cry, Give me, Lord, the desire of my heart. And if you have not any desire, you have but to ask the first tried Christian that you meet. He'll tell you of one. Oh, he will reply to you, if you have nothing to ask for yourself, pray for me. Ask that a sick wife may be recovered. Pray that the Lord would lift up the light of his countenance upon a desponding heart. Ask that the Lord would send help to some minister who has been laboring in vain and spending his strength for naught. When you have done for yourself, plead for others. And if you cannot meet with one who can suggest a theme, look on this huge Sodom, this city like another Gomorrah, and lying before you. Carry it constantly in your prayers before God and cry, Oh, that London may live before thee, that its sin may be stayed, that its righteousness may be exalted, that the God of the earth may get into himself much people out of this city. Equally necessary is it with the definite object for prayer that there should be an earnest desire for its attainment. Cold prayers, says an old divine, ask for a denial. When we ask the Lord coolly, fervently, we do, as it were, stop his hand and restrain him from giving us the very blessing we pretend that we are seeking. When you have your object in your eye, Your soul must become so possessed with the value of that object, with your own excessive need for it, with the danger that you will be in unless that object should be granted, that you will be compelled to plead for it as a man pleadeth for his life. There was a beautiful illustration of true prayer addressed to man in the conduct of two noble ladies whose husbands were condemned to die and were about to be executed When they came before King George and supplicated for their pardon, the king rudely and cruelly repulsed them. George I, it was like his very nature. And when they pleaded yet again and again and again, they could not be gotten to rise from their knees. They had actually to be dragged out of court, for they would not retire until the king had smiled upon them and told them that their husbands should live. Alas! They failed, but they were noble women for their perseverance in thus pleading for their husbands' lives. That is the way for us to pray to God. We must have such a desire for the thing we want that we will not rise until we have it, but in submission to his divine will, nevertheless. Feeling that the thing we ask for cannot be wrong and that he himself hath promised it, we have Resolved it must be given, and if not given, we will plead the promise again and again, till heaven's gates shall shake before our pleas shall cease. No wonder that God has not blessed us uh, much of late, because we are not fervent in prayer as we should be. All those cold-hearted prayers that, that die upon the lips, those frozen supplications, They do not move men's hearts. How should they move God's heart? 
They do not come from our own souls. They do not well up from the deep secret springs of our inmost heart, and therefore they cannot rise up to him who only hears the cry of the soul, before whom hypocrisy can weave no veil, or formality practice any disguise. We must be earnest, otherwise we have no right to hope that the Lord will hear our prayer. And surely, my brethren, it were enough to restrain all lightness and constrain an unceasing earnestness did we apprehend the greatness of the being before whom we plead. Shall I come into thy presence, O my God, and mock thee with cold-hearted words? Do the angels veil their faces before thee, and shall I be content to prattle through a form with no soul and no heart? Ah, my brethren! We little know how many of our prayers are an abomination unto the Lord. It would be an abomination to you and to me to hear men ask us in the streets as if they did not want what they asked for. But have we not done the same to God? Has not that which is heaven's greatest boon to man become to us a dry, dead duty? It was said of John Bradford that he had a peculiar art in prayer, and when asked for his secret, he said, When I know what I want, I always stop on that prayer until I feel that I have pleaded it with God, and until God and I have had dealings with each other upon it. I never go on to another petition till I have gone through the first. Alas! For some men who begin, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, and before they have realized the adoring thought, hallowed be thy name, they have begun to repeat the next words, Thy kingdom come. And then perhaps something strikes their mind. Do I really wish his kingdom to come? If it were to come now, where should I be? And while they are thinking of that, their voice is going on with, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So they jumble up their prayers and run the sentences together. Oh, stop at each one until you have really prayed it. Do not try to put two arrows on the string at once. They'll both miss. He that would load his gun with two charges cannot expect to be successful. Discharge one shot first and then load again. Please once with God and prevail, and then plead again. Get the first mercy, and then go again for the second. Do not be satisfied with running the colors of your prayers into one another, till there is no picture to look at but just a, a huge daub, a, a smear of colors badly laid on. Look at the Lord's Prayer. What clear, sharp outlines there are in it. There are certain definite mercies, and they do not run into one another. There it stands. And as you look at the whole, it is a magnificent picture, not confusion, but beautiful order. Be it so with your prayers. Stay on one until you have prevailed with that, and then go on to the next. With definite objects and fervent desires mixed together, there is the dawning of hope that you shall prevail with God. But again, these two things would not avail if they were not mixed with a still more essential and divine quality, namely, a firm faith in God. Brethren, do you believe in prayer? 
I know you pray because you are God's people, but do you believe in the power of prayer? There are a great many Christians that do not. They think it's a good thing, and they believe that sometimes it does wonders, but they do not think that prayer, real prayer, is always successful. They think that its effect depends upon many other things, but that it has not any essential quality of power in itself. Now, my own soul's conviction is that prayer is the grandest power in the entire universe, that it has a more omnipotent force than electricity, attraction, gravitation, or any other of those secret forces that men have called by names, but that they do not understand. Prayer hath as palpable, as true, as sure, as invariable an influence over the entire universe as any of the laws of matter. When a man really prays, it is not a question whether God will hear him or not. He must hear him, not because there is any compulsion in the prayer, but there is a sweet and blessed compulsion in the promise. God has promised to hear prayer, and he will perform his promise. As he is the most high and true God, he cannot deny himself. Oh, to think of this, that you, a puny man, may stand here and speak to God, and through God may move all the worlds. Yet when your prayer is heard, creation will not be disturbed. Though the grandest ends be answered, providence will not be disarranged for a single moment. Not a leaf will fall earlier from the tree, not a star will stay in its course, nor not one drop of water trickle more slowly from its fount. All will go on the same, and yet your prayer will have effected everything. It will speak to the decrees and purposes of God as they are being daily fulfilled. And they will all shout to your prayer and cry, Thou art our brother. We are decrees, and thou a prayer, but thou art thyself a decree, as old, as sure, as ancient as we are. Our prayers are God's decrees in another shape. The prayers of God's people are but God's promises breathed out of living hearts, and those promises are the decrees only put into another form and fashion. Do not say, how can my prayers affect the decrees? They cannot, except in so much that your prayers are decrees, and that as they come out, every prayer that is inspired of the Holy Ghost unto your soul is as omnipotent and as eternal as that decree which said, let there be light, and there was light or as that decree which chose his people and ordained their redemption by the precious blood of Christ. Thou hast power in prayer, and thou standest today among the most potent ministers in the universe that God has made. Thou hast power over angels. They will fly at thy will. And thou hast power over fire and water and the elements of earth. Thou hast power to make thy voice heard beyond the stars. Where the thunders die out in silence, thy voice shall wake the echoes of eternity. The ear of God himself shall listen, and the hand of God himself shall yield to thy will. He bids thee cry, thy will be done, and thy will shall be done. When thou canst plead his promise, 
then thy will is his will. Seems it not, my dear friends, an awful thing to have such a power in one's hands as to be able to pray? You have heard sometimes of men who pretended to have a weird and mystic might by which they could call up spirits from the vast deep, by which they could make showers of rain or stop the sun. It was all a figment of the fancy. But were it true, the Christian is a greater magician still. If he has but faith in God, there is nothing impossible to him. He shall be delivered out of the deepest waters. He shall be rescued out of the sorest troubles. In famine he shall be fed. In pestilence he shall go unscathed. Amidst calamity he shall walk firm and strong. In war he shall be ever shielded. And in the day of battle he shall lift up his head, if he can but believe the promise, and hold it up before God's eyes, and plead it with the spell of unfaltering reliance. There is nothing... I repeat it, there is no force so tremendous, no energy so marvelous as the energy with which God has endowed every man who, like Jacob, can wrestle, like Israel, can prevail with him in prayer. But we must have faith in this. We must believe prayer to be what it is, or else it is not what it should be. Unless I believe my prayer to be effectual, it will not be. For on my faith will it to a great extent depend. God may give me the mercy even when I have not faith. That would be his own sovereign grace, but he has not promised to do it. But when I have faith and can plead the promise with earnest desire, it is no longer a probability as to whether I shall get the blessing or whether my will shall be done. Unless the Eternal will swerve from his word, unless the oath that he has given shall be revoked, and he himself shall cease to be what he is, well, we know that we have the petitions that we desired of him. Charles Spurgeon. <clears throat> this message... was preached on August the 12th, 1860, at Exeter Hall, Strand, in, in Old England. Not, not as old as some of the Puritans I'm reading from, but old for us. Thank you so much for being here and listening. Look around the site. We've got a lot more than Spurgeon, but we do have a lot of Spurgeon, too. Check it out. I think you'll be blessed just looking around. This is the Hackberry House of Chosun, and this audio... Is being released on the 6th of January, 2023. Lord willing, we'll talk again real soon. Bye-bye.